so to keep us from falling apart We'll write songs in the dark And to stop us from fading away We'll write for a better day Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer So you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman Welcome, Boards Insiders. I am Patrick Beeman, the host of the Inside the Boards podcast. This is our Chernobyl series. And without any more delay, let's get right into the content. An 18-year-old female presents to her physician with a chief complaint of pelvic pain. She has no past medical history and her vital signs are normal. Physical exam is positive for fullness in the adnexa bilaterally, and an ultrasound confirms bilateral multilobulated solid adnexal masses. On serum studies, LDH is elevated. Alpha-fetoprotein is within the normal range. She undergoes treatment, including a course of pelvic irradiation. An increased risk of which of the following is most likely? A. Fetal malformation in subsequent pregnancy. B premature ovarian failure, C, hematologic malignancy, or D, pulmonary fibrosis? And the correct answer here is premature ovarian failure, or primary ovarian insufficiency. So with this one, you should know that chemotherapeutic drugs and radiation are the most common causes of toxin-induced ovarian failure. Now, there's more to learn in this question, or at least I want to provide you some other knowledge, uh, something probably more applicable to step two or an OBGYN clerkship, and that is about the uh, clinical picture described in this vignette. So if you look, we've got an 18-year-old female who has multilobulated solid adnexal masses, and she's got an elevated LDH, and a normal alpha-fetoprotein, and then she undergoes a course of pelvic irradiation. So what's being described here is a dysgerminoma. It's the most common germ cell tumor of the ovary, and it's especially notable for being sensitive to chemotherapy and radiation. And this is in contrast to the other germ cell tumors of the ovary, which tend to be radioresistant. Let me back up here. Just some bonus learning for your step two or OBGYN clerkship here. There are three types of ovarian neoplasia that you need to know. And each of these is, uh, finds its origin in one of the uh, cell types that we see within the ovary, egg cells or germ cells, the surface epithelial tumors, and then the sex cord stromal tumors. Another note on terminology before moving ahead, you'll hear the term adnexal mass, and that's more of a general term we use that distinguishes or, or rather contains uh, the subcategories of cyst versus neoplasia or tumor. Quick facts, the most common ovarian cyst is the follicular cyst, and the most common ovarian neoplasm or tumor is the mature cystic teratoma, or sometimes called the dermoid cyst. Cysts are basically fluid-filled sacs, and 
tumors are basically solid growths that arise from one of the three layers of the ovary. Um, And remember, they can be both or either benign or malignant. Germ cell tumors are essentially undifferentiated tumors that arise from the pluripotent germ cell layers. Uh, If you think back to embryology, all that stuff about endoderm, ectoderm, and mesoderm, So, for instance, the mature cystic teratoma arises from very early germ cells uh, that have more than one embryonic layer. And that's why some of the the components are ectoderm, some are endoderm uh, in origin. That's why you see uh, hair, teeth, bone um, within the mature cystic teratoma. And you can also see a specialized form of this sort of teratoma called a struma ovarii that's a variant containing functional thyroid tissue. So another bonus if you see a woman with a pelvic mass plus symptoms of hyperthyroidism, she probably has a struma ovarii tumor. While this particular exception exists within the germ cell tumor class, The germ cell tumors are not ones that produce hormones. They're not the functional tumors. The functional tumors arise from the sex cord stroma, kind of the support cells of uh, the ovary that prepare the follicle for development and eventually ovulation. So um, you're thinking the support cells or gonadal sex cords are, you know, the precursors to Sertoli, Leydig cells, Theca cells. So those sex cord stroma, because the gonadal sex cord related cells are responsible for producing the hormones that develop the egg, they are going to produce hormones that you need to know in order to get questions right on the test. So Sertoli-Leydig cell tumors produce androgens, so a woman would have excess androgen on serum studies. The granulosa theca cell tumors will present with elevated estrogens, and because of that, uh, you see these patients having menstrual abnormalities and uh, kind of a situation of unopposed estrogen that leads to potentially endometrial hyperplasia or cancer. So another bonus, if you see a patient who presents with heavy vaginal bleeding and an ovarian mass, plus evidence of an endometrial hyperplasia picture, she most likely will have a granulosa theca cell tumor, one of the sex cord stroma tumors. But back to the germ cell tumors. The germ cell tumors don't produce hormones except for the mature cystic teratoma, but they do have unique tumor markers. Endodermal sinus or yolk sac tumor, the endoderm usually gives rise, well, endoderm gives rise to the yolk sac and hepatobiliary structures. The yolk sac something uh, that forms kind of like primitive gut stuff. And so if you remember that yolk sac or endodermal sinus gives rise to the liver, you can remember that tumor marker, alpha-fetoprotein, or AFP, is the tumor marker in a yolk sac tumor because it's also the tumor marker in hepatocellular carcinoma. Choriocarcinoma is another of the germ cell tumors, and this is the ovarian form, which should be distinguished from the uh, gestational trophoblastic disease form uh, that you see in you know discussions of, say, molar pregnancy. But this one's easy to remember because choriocarcinoma's tumor marker is an elevated 
HCG. And that's nice because human choreonic gonadotropin um, is elevated in choreocarcinoma. This patient in this vignette has a dysgerminoma. And the reason for that is that her elevation is in LDH. The vignette rules out yolk sac tumors by noting a normal AFP. And so just trust me, this is a dysgerminoma, and I just want you to remember a couple things about it. So it's the most common malignant ovarian germ cell tumor, uh, sometimes referred to as the female seminoma. And what you have to remember about germ cell tumors is that they are very sensitive to radiation in contrast to the other germ cell tumors. So dysgerminoma, very sensitive to radiation. And then there is also, I don't know if this is more like resident level stuff, but the chemotherapeutic agent of choice is BEP or bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin. So with all of that being said, the pelvic radiation in this patient's history is most likely to have or most likely to cause premature ovarian failure over and above the other answer choices. That's the breakdown. Looking at the answer choices that are incorrect, A was a fetal malformation in pregnancy. Actually, it seems that pelvic radiation prior to pregnancy, so when there's no embryo in there, uh, does not have an effect on the risk of fetal malformation in future pregnancies. I guess that's sort of a, a fact you should just know. Pelvic radiation does increase the risk of secondary hematologic malignancy, but for perspective, in general, the risk of secondary malignancy development after cancer treatment is going to be lower than the risks of acute cancer-related uh, side effects or tissue-specific consequences. Leukemia's incidence among those who receive pelvic radiation is like 0.0022% versus the comparison to non-irradiated subjects' incidence of leukemia, which is 0.0017%. On the other hand, the incidence of primary ovarian failure following pelvic irradiation uh, is probably around 8 to 10%. So it's just much more common. And it's one of the uh, things that would happen immediately from damage of the tissue from irradiation itself. Pulmonary fibrosis, I included this as a distractor because uh, dysgerminoma is treated with the BEP protocol, and bleomycin is one of that, one of those. And just so you remember, bleomycin. Its uh, main kind of association within the USMLE world is pulmonary fibrosis. So all that is included in there just to remind you that bleomycin causes pulmonary fibrosis. All right, so the last thing I want to leave you with is regarding the tumor marker LDH in dysgerminoma. Not sure if this is all that helpful, but it can be difficult to remember each of these tumor markers or for the sex cord stromal tumors, the hormones they produce. But for dysgerminoma, I've got this one, DHL. 
So DHL is a shipping company. And if you unscramble DHL, you get LDH. So you can think of DHL as dysgerminomas have LDH. And the acronym DHL will remind you that LDH is elevated. You can also think that DHL, the shipping company, ships rapidly dysgerminoma sensitive to radiation. Hopefully that's helpful. There's some stuff on dysgerminomas and radiation treatment. Now let's get back to our episode. Another thing I'm, I'm just trying to draw out like um, and help the, the listeners understand what, what are like essential things you should know, uh, some essential things you should know as a medical student about um, how radiation as a treatment modality or the side effects of radiation would show up on, say, like the USMLE? Like, what do you think is important uh, enough uh, for a medical student to know? Is that something that could be answered? Probably not easily, but... I can't say that there were a lot of... That I can even think back to practice questions or even uh, any questions that were asked on it, which is probably a good thing. But... Uh, you know, I think from a radiation standpoint, there folks that are going through radiation therapy, and this may not be so applicable to um, USMLE, but just from a practical standpoint, if you're doing hospital medicine or outpatient medicine, the side effects from radiation therapy are fairly predictable. Um, and it goes back to what we talked about before in terms of just the kind of the basement membrane, stem cells you know, differentiating, you know, if somebody is getting radiation to their, let's say their pelvis for rectal cancer, you could pretty much set your clock to the fact that they're going to start having diarrhea in about their second to third week. Somebody's getting radiation to their esophagus. They're going to start to have esophagitis about their third week. Um, if somebody's getting radiation to their breast, they're going to start to have you know, skin erythema and reaction about three weeks into treatment. And it's just because you know, these these cells, uh, especially the epithelial linings, are constantly replacing themselves. And so whenever you start the treatment, then they're just not getting that next batch of healthy cells in the same that they would normally. Uh, and so all symptom management is going to be directed at that, whatever itis the radiation is causing. The only other thing, just before we end up, is you yeah. did in your questions, you said, you know, what kind of advice would you have in terms of testing and things? Um, I, ha having gone through so many tests, th the best thing, you know, I would say for anybody studying for any test is to try to simulate that test. So if it's a multiple choice test, do as many multiple choice questions as you can, because when you're doing your day-to-day -day stuff in your clinical years or in your residency, you're not thinking the way multiple choice questions make you think. And so the more practice you do to get in that mode, I had to do oral boards and same thing. I don't sit around and get quizzed like an oral board examiner would. And so practicing that and practicing that and practicing that, because um, you probably know the material. It's just kind of knowing how to think about the material and, and get to the right answer. All right. Last last question, because I, I know um, you are a, a busy dude and you just had a new baby, too. So how did the Hulk being exposed to gamma radiation get his powers? I just don't get it. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's just total garbage. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So although radiation can change your DNA, it isn't going to turn you into a walking, roaring city destroyer a la Godzilla. <laughs> I remember uh, right when I started, you know, kind of my training, we were in Florida. And I don't know if they still have it at uh, Universal Studios, but they used to have a a Hulk ride there. It was, it was a good uh, roller coaster where your like legs were suspended and whatnot, but I think they've taken it out. Anyway, uh, I remember, you know, kind of walking through it and they're like the gamma radiation, the gamma radiation. I'm like, I don't think that would cause anybody. <laughs> to fall. It would cause the things we've already talked about, acute radiation syndrome and, and whatnot. So. Okay. So generally bad, stay away from radioactive spiders. You're not going to get a bunch of superpowers and um, stay away from high dose gamma radiation. You're not going to turn into the Hulk. You're just going to get a terrible GI illness and possibly die. Yeah, that's right. And if not, you might live out to get leukemia or some other cancer later on. All right. Well, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. All right, that's it for our Chernobyl series. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have enjoyed this episode, this series, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And we beg you, please tell your friends about Inside the Boards. Thanks to Chris Breitigan, the executive producer of this series, and Ike Potter, who is the producer of the main ITV podcast. All right, special thanks to the guys from Enter Shikari for letting us use the song Radiate off their LP Rat Race. You can listen to Enter Shikari wherever you find music. <laughs>